0: Let's turn together in the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We are still in this series of studies on Christian ethics. Um, we've moved away from ethics regarding uh, church life and worship to consider ethics of the Christian family. Uh, again, I say what I've said in recent times, this is not an exhaustive uh, study. It's not a how-to it really is a desire, in my part, to set out the principles that govern the how-to. And if the principles are clear, uh, then so many of the how-to questions answer themselves. Um, but the principles must be clear, and they must come from the Word of God. I'm also mindful, again, that these studies, as we go through this series, and that every circumstance may not apply to all of you. I look around today, and uh, the focus of our attention today is upon the husband, and you are not all husbands. And so, in that regard, I understand that the principles may not apply directly to you, but they apply to the entire church, and therefore, as God's people, they apply to you in giving you understanding of how to pray, how to pray for others in the church, how to pray for young men in the church, how to pray for these things, uh, that indeed, in future generations, the glory of God will be manifest in Christian uh, marriages. And so, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. And with those comments being made, Ephesians chapter 5, Um, we're going to read together from the verse number 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, for no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and then shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Amen. May God be pleased again to give us understanding of this portion of his sacred word. Again, let me go back to the beginning of a definition of marriage and drawing from the language of Malachi chapter 2. We are seeing marriage as a covenant of companionship. It is a a covenant between two parties. Uh, Again, in a Christian marriage, those equally yoked in Christ coming together and covenanting to give themselves unto the other till death them do part. It has that solemnity to it, that security of coming with an oath-bound promise for the well-being of the other party. Again, I haven't mentioned that in any detail up to this point, but I want to highlight again now that in God's covenants, his oath-bound promise pertains to the well-being of the other party. That's part of God's covenant, And so in the language of covenant, we also find the word blessing being used. Blessing, I will bless you. And so as God enters covenant, the focus of that covenant is for the well-being of the other party, namely the church, in terms of the covenant of God. And so it is in marriage that as the parties covenant together, it is for the benefit of the other party. That's their burden. And they do so in the context of companionship. But with that definition in mind, you have the function of marriage, and again, we looked at this uh, last time, this idea of unity, inequality, whilst not denying diversity. And It's trying to hold these three things in balance that I think is why we find marriages so difficult. Uh, these things get, uh, they, they get out of kilter, and we find it hard to, to really walk cl- clearly and carefully with our God. And so we thought about the matter of unity. And living in godly contentment together to promote the other's Christ likeness, and then if God would so bless raising children in the Lord in a spirit of unity, that mutual responsibility. And we saw those things in the last time, and for that, again, to go forward, there is the need for equality. Again, we're looking at principles here for Christian marriage, but those principles are principles for every marriage. For the best of marriages are those that are wrought out in the will of God, living according to the precepts of God. Those are the the best marriages. And for that to be the case, we need the Spirit of God. And therefore, there is this need for equality in Christ, the equal yoke, again, of two parties coming together in the things of righteousness. And, of course, in that regard, it also points again uh, to the idea that we are marrying a brother or a sister in the Lord, Again, we finished last time by highlighting the danger that if we misunderstand diversity, then the husband may well treat his wife in a way that he would not treat his sister in the Lord. And this need for treating them with dignity, and with honor, or not with abuse, or not in some way neglecting their responsibility uh, to a sister in the Lord whom Christ has died for so these things are very important when it comes to the functioning of marriage, unity, equality. But there is also then, moving on today, there is the matter of diversity. And here we're looking at diversity of of role primarily. Uh, There are distinctions in the function of the husband and the wife. And Ephesians 5 sets that out. Again, sometimes people are a little perturbed regarding the verse number 21 and how that flows into the section on marriage. Verse 21 relates to the church of Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That's relating to our responsibility in the wider church. You think of Philippians chapter 2. Not your own interest, but that of the other, and this idea of, of working together in the church for the good of others. But Paul then highlights that that does not deny the particular dynamics in the home. These are separate spheres, overlapping but separate. The church is not the home, and the home is not the church. And so in the home life, there is then this responsibility, verse 22 of the wives, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. The Greek scholars often enjoy this word, your own husbands. It is the word that we get a word idiot from, the individual. And so you submit yourself to your own idiot husband, idios, this idea of an individual that's the point of that. It's the, the individual husband, not to not to husbands in general. That's taken in verse 21. So, every wife will submit to every husband, and every husband will submit to every wife, in a sense, in the church. When it comes to the home, there is this diversity of role, and wives are told to submit themselves not to every husband in this sense, but unto their own husbands. And so, men, just to be clear on this, this has been abused in some Reformed churches. There are men who've been going in the Reformed churches presuming they can say what they like to any wife they like and expect the wife to obey whatever they say. They may not be elders in the church. They may just, say they'll just be a member of the church, and they think that they have an authority role over every woman in the church. That is not what is taught here in Ephesians chapter 5. But the husband has the role, and I'm mentioning this here, of being a loving leader, And the wife is to be a submissive servant. And we'll look at those uh, one after the other. Again, going back, we must see these roles in the context of companionship. Not to be abused, but to be treasured, given the mutual responsibilities of love and friendship in the things of marriage. Husbands and wives. And So when it comes to the husband, his role is to be a loving leader. And I think that definition comes from Ephesians chapter 5, and you have the idea husband is the head of the wife, and then the exhortation, verse 25, husbands love your wives. So the primary command given to the husband is to love. Now that, the very fact that comes as a command, reminds us that this man must be a choice of the will that is seen in action. It is not demanding that you feel a certain way, although I think that also is assumed. Again, these things are so easily misunderstood. Again, those with a biblical knowledge they will say, "Well, my duty is to show love to my wife. My duty is not to love my wife emotionally." That's nonsense. Just as we frank about it, that is nonsense. Proper love that is shown. Will only properly come when the heart is attached to the action. You can do a kind service to somebody without really loving that person sincerely. So, this love is a love that comes from the heart, but is then shown in action. But the fact that it comes as a command indicates again that, men, you've a daily choice before God. As you battle with the flesh, you've got to decide in your mind I will love my wife today as Christ loved the church. And so in that setting, you then have the understanding, verse 23, that the husband is the head of the wife. It does not say, husbands, you must be the head of your wife. It's not a command, it's a statement of fact. And so when you look at this as a statement of fact, the husband is either a good head or a bad head. He's a head either way, but he may do it badly, or he may do it well to the glory of God. This understanding of the roles of marriage is again God's goodwill for his people. This is good. Again, the world so often comes and tries to squeeze the church into its mold. And we're certainly living in a time when, when young people are being raised in an age where this sort of concept is so foreign. And even in the church, we, we find ourselves wondering really? Is, is it really this way? Because we, we, it just seems so countercultural in the modern world, and it is countercultural. You add to this, it was countercultural, by the way, in the 1980s, uh, because the feminist movement was sweeping across uh, the Western world. I'm not sure where you even begin to define it now in light of the confusion regarding what marriage actually is. But the idea of marriage being one man, one woman for life, and then these being the roles. Again, be prepared, young people. You're going to look more and more like some alien from outer planets in this world of confusion. But it is good. Why do we know it's good? Because it's God's will. It's that simple. This is not a profound discussion regarding the ethics of marriage. This is God's will. Distortion of this is a result of the fall, not of God's, God's good order. you can go back to Genesis chapter 2. You've got to go back to the beginning, of course. And in Genesis chapter 2, you see that God's order... I should have taken you. Well, there's no saying Genesis chapter 2, but let's remind you very briefly, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in the context of the head covering, gives us God's order. Or again, the man is the head of the woman in that context. And as Paul defends that principle in 1 Corinthians 11... He uses the creation order for that purpose, man made first. And so you have that, of course, here. It's in the the Word of God. It is the man that was made first, and out of man is made woman. And so in Genesis chapter 2, you have the setting out of the creation of the woman, verse number 11, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. The point is clearly taught that in God's purpose he made man first and man was the one who was to serve as the representative head of humanity. I don't know if you thought we would discuss the representative head of Christ at this time, but Christ represents his people as their head and Adam represented his people as their head, as humanity, and the headship of Adam included representing his wife. And so sin enters the world. Yes, we know Eve was deceived, but Romans chapter 5 makes it clear it is Adam's sin as the representative head that brings sin upon all of his posterity, his humanity. are impacted. One man dies, but all sin in him. Headship. And so God's good order, in Genesis chapter 2, assumes the headship of Adam over his wife. He is the one after whom humanity is named. Mankind is called after Adam. Adam has the role even to name his wife. He calls her woman, verse number 23, exercising his headship. So when you look then, Uh, Genesis chapter 3, there's an important text that must must be properly understood. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 16, gives the impact of the fall upon the woman. And it says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That is, again, it's caused some confusion, and understandably so. It seems to imply that the fall is the result of man then ruling over the woman. It seems to be the idea here. There's this, this, this issue of the man ruling over the woman in the context of the judgment of God upon women for the fall. But that's not the case. Genesis 2 underscores the headship of Adam over his wife before the fall. And so what may be the case here is in Genesis three sixteen. you're seeing what the fall does to God's good order. And you then get the development of rebellion and a, perhaps a domineering spirit of the man over his wife. A breakdown of God's good order in Genesis chapter 2. You see, submission is clearly taught in the Word of God. Spheres of submission. And so even in the world, and again, we understand that even children in school context, they understand there is some level of submission to higher authorities. We generally submit to law enforcement. As we drive our cars on the road, there is some submission to law enforcement and to government. There's submission in the workplace. Those of you who are under an employer, there's submission in that regard. But when it comes to the home, it is very much under attack. I would say, I think this is true, that the rebellion that exists in our society today has as its origin a denial of God's order in the home. Let's think through that for a moment or two. When society, when society fights against God's order from the, in the home, children are raised in that context of a disorderly home. And that then flows into wider society and there's a wider spreading of rebellion in the society against all due authority, whether it be, again, in the workplace or in the governmental systems, there's rebellion in these areas. So it's important, young people, it's important to have these things clear in your mind, the definition of this diversity. Any comments on that? or don't want to move on from there for now. All good, Daniel. that's right yeah there's that sense that it applies it applies across into into into, into church life as well That's right. This order, the order of society. That's right. Daniel's is making the point here that it goes even into church life in First Timothy regarding the uh, the wife not or the woman not to teach in the church, and there is that application there. Uh, certainly regarding God's ordering society, and again, as Daniel says, he goes back to creation, uh, not to the fall in these things. So it applies to, to marriage, and again, uh, in that context, to the church also. Okay, well, let's move on then to what this looks like in practice. So the husband is to be loving leader. How does that work out practically? Well, again, back into Ephesians chapter 5, we are seeing in this most sober way that the model of the husband's loving leadership is to be Christ. Verse number, again, verse number 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And then verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And so the model of this headship is indeed the model of Christ. And so if you're going to understand this, you've got to ask yourself the question, well, how does Christ lead the church as its head? What does that look like? Well, the relationship of Christ and the church is, of course, a messianic relationship. We talk of Christ as the Messiah, the one, the anointed one. And therefore, his role as head of the church is the role of prophet, priest, and king. Those threefold offices of the Old Testament brought into one person in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Christ is head of the church as its prophet, bringing the word to the church, as its priest, bringing the church to God, and again, as its king, ruling over them in God. Those three roles, those three offices, are the model whereby the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. And so you see that in this regard. I've given you kind of three, just three general things to catch hold of. The husband is to direct spiritually as prophet and priest, to provide sacrificially as king, and to protect resolutely as king. And I'm sure there's a better way to organize that in a a more succinct way, but I think those three ideas summarize the role of the husband as a loving head, and yet they do fall into the categories of Christ's work as our prophet, priest, and king. And so the husband's goal is to be a tender, compassionate leader who will direct the home spiritually, provide for the home sacrificially, and protect the home resolutely, as Christ does the church. It is a relationship of tenderness. Again, you see over in verse number 29 that the man is to nourish and cherish his wife as the Lord the church. So, this is not a relationship where there's a a domineering, abusive spirit. It comes from a loving tenderness, as Christ has compassion for the church. It's a very it's understatement this is it's a very high calling. Hard to put into words the solemnity of this calling to every husband that the will of God revealed in the sacred scriptures is that you're to love your wives as Christ also loved the church. Let's think of these things then. There is this matter of directing spiritually as prophet and priest, and that goes both directions leading the family in terms of bringing the family to God in prayer personally and together, and also as a prophet, bringing the word of God to the family. To lead in this regard, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, Just an interesting text that, that assumes this. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and the verse number 35. Here, of course, 34 gives the idea of the woman keeping silence in the church. But then verse 35, and if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. The context seems to be that there were questions that were arising in the context of public worship, and the women were asking these questions in that setting, and they were to ask their husbands at home. Now, all I'm showing you here is the implication is that the husband is to lead doctrinally for the benefit of the home. Like that, get careful here. Aquila had a very good helpmate as they taught Apollos. Priscilla was clearly versed in the word of God and was able to give instruction to Apollos, teaching him in a more perfect way the things of Christ. So this is not suggesting for a second that women have no role in a private setting to even direct and help other men and their own husbands in the things of God. Men, don't close your ears when your wife comes along and says, I learned something today in the Word. There is this sense the wife is learning the Scriptures and she'll she'll gladly come and encourage you with what the Lord has taught her. That is a blessing from God to be treasured. But does not undermine the importance here that the husband has a role to set themselves up to the point that they are those who understand the word of God and can then give direction to their wives in this setting. Young men, I cannot impress upon you enough. You think you're busy right now? I guarantee you life will just get busier. And now is the time that you have to put your phone down and start studying Christian doctrine sincerely give yourselves wholeheartedly to understanding the basis of the gospel, to attend to the word of God in church diligently, that when it comes to the point that you're married, that you suddenly realize, oh, I should have done this a long time ago. In your youth, before you get married, now is the time to study diligently the word of God, that you seek to understand clearly the basic doctrines of the word of God, that you can defend them and explain them and seek to understand the scriptures You will not do exhaustively, do not put that burden upon your back, but you can do sincerely and thoroughly, and you should do so. If you want some help, please see me after. Seriously, there are things that you can use to study and to build up your knowledge in the Word of God. So there is this need to direct spiritually and to lead doctrinally. The husband has the role to lead the family in the instruction of children. Again, you think back to Deuteronomy 4 and 6 and the law of God directing in the home. And again, I think what always strikes me in that regard, it is not restricted to 10, 15 minutes every day where the word of God is read, there's a prayer and life goes on. It has the idea as you walk in the way. And the principle is that the husband is so directing the home in every circumstance that Monday to Saturday and then the Lord's Day, there's a continual direction of the people to the place and the Word. So, men, it is your duty as you raise a family to get them on the Lord's Day to a place where the Word of God is taught. That's your responsibility to lead your family in that doctrinal sense, leading them to the Word of God every single Lord's Day. That's your duty. It is your duty through the week to then seek to instruct them in the things of God. And even when it comes to their education, husbands, it is your duty to oversee that matter. It does not mean you will do it personally. You may well defer to your wife in a homeschooling setting. you say, here, please teach my children the things of God with the confidence you have in her as a teacher of the Word. Or you may involve in a Christian school. But men, it's your duty to make that call, to make those decisions, to act as the leader in those situations. It's so what it is to be a man of God in the home. Again, so often men take their hands off those things. The children belong to the wife, and it's kind of, well, wife, you, you discuss those things. You decide what's best for the kids. Well, we do so in unity. We saw that. But men, you're the one who must lead in that regard and give clear direction. And I would put it this way, if there's a conflict, you're the one that must stand before God and give the final word in the matter. It's not always easy. But it is what it is to be a leader as Christ loved the church. You have also this matter then of providing sacrificially. Turn to First Timothy chapter five. First Timothy chapter five. And the verse number eight. First Timothy five, by the way, is one of the most interesting chapters in terms of society and church and need. It has to do with the issue of the widows and those who are widows indeed. And they had the need in the they had the need, certainly, to be cared for by the church. But before they were cared for by the church, they had to be, first of all, if possible, cared for by their family. First Timothy 5, verse 8, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. Now here, it's referring to men perhaps providing for their mothers and mothers-in-law's. That's the idea of the wider family. But the implication is that the man has the responsibility to provide for the financial well-being of the home. And that's drawn against an interesting verse back in Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24 and the verse number 27. Prepare thy work without, Proverbs 24, 27, Prepare thy work without, and make it fit for thyself in the field, and afterwards build thine house. See the order there? Now, I understand there's many young men and they want to get married, they want to set up home. But it is clear they ought not to set up home until they've got the field working properly. In other words, that they are able to prepare and provide for the home. Now that is sometimes misused in Christian circles. They understand the principle and therefore young men put off getting married forever. So we'll have enough money saved because they have a standard that I, I want to provide, I want to provide three vacations, three cars, a large house and a swimming pool. I want all those things provided and until I can do that, I'm not going to get married. No, 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 no. You know, have have biblical understanding of what's, what's required in providing. It's food and raiment and shelter. Can you clothe? Can you feed? And can you put a roof over their heads? It may be a small roof over a small house with no land. But you can do that, then yeah, go ahead and get married. But if you can't do that, if you can't provide for your home, then don't get married. Get these things in the right order. You to provide for the family. Well, thirdly and finally, time is going today, we are to protect resolutely. And this one, I certainly wrestled that this, this could go in so many directions in such a very long time of future studies, the protection I suppose, in simple fashion, where could harm come to your wife and to your children? Certainly, in Ephesians chapter five, there is the understanding of protecting for the wife and vindication the home spiritually, to sanctify. Christ loved the church, gave himself to sanctify. And therefore, implied in that is to protect the wife from spiritual harm, from false doctrine, from bad literature, from bad podcasts. By seeking to understand, well, what is the wife taking in regarding spiritual instruction? And is that helpful or harmful? Again, okay, men, don't be blind to these things. You have a responsibility of oversight. And you say, I understand your, your wife is mature and adult, but you ought to be clear as to what she's imbibing that may harm her spiritually, and then taking the stewardship of her to say, dear, this is not helpful. And protecting her from those spiritual harms. It's a high calling. Emotional protection. Think of 1 Peter chapter 3 verse number 7, understanding the wife as a weaker vessel, there is that need for emotional protection. This is why I get very, very, genuinely, I get very, very frustrated when, when reformed men feel they have the right to abuse their wives by a domineering headship. Bringing about, essentially, emotional abuse in their own home when it is their duty to protect their wives emotionally, to understand they are tender in the sight of God's, and to protect them from Emotional harm. Again, that harm can come from so many different areas. They are to protect their wives sexually. First Corinthians chapter 7 is very clear of the mutual responsibilities within the marital roles. And you have within that assumption that there's protection of the wife in these areas from the predators of this world, from all of the filth of this world, and guarding them in that regard also. Protection. The implication, I say, it comes to the wife first and then from that towards the children. Fathers, it is your duty to consider what might harm your children and seek to put a guard around them. Sometimes children don't like that. That's a fact of human nature. We see it in all manner of ways. People, for some reason, they seem to prickle against those things that may protect them from harm. These things that they see hinders their liberties. You know, liberties, properly understood, come within boundaries. And the boundaries, of course, is the Word of God. And proper liberties enjoyed within the boundaries of God's Word, and therefore the Father setting up the boundaries of God's Word will protect the children from those things that harm them from outside the Word of God. Seek seem to be discerning. This is very difficult today. Given the culture and the internet, how do we even begin to understand all the things that may harm our children, and yet we ought to do our very best before God to guard them from spiritual and emotional and physical harm, all those things that we take for granted as those who are kings in the home. Guard, I suppose it is, our duty to guard our children until they will then guard themselves. You're trying to get your children to the point of maturity where they understand themselves, That is harmful. The open fire is so tempting for a two year old. So inviting. Look at that. It's it's so bright and attractive. And so, what you do well, in our home, we we put a guard up outside the fire so that when they were drawn towards it, they could not touch the fire to the point they understood fire dangerous, don't touch fire, and the guard goes away. That's what you're trying to do. Trying to raise your children to make mature decisions that they will understand themselves. Harmful, don't touch. But it is the father's role, the husband's role, to be the loving leader in the home. And all this in love, sacrificing themselves for the benefit of the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And so this is not a to-do list. I'm trying to give principles and applications and some illustrations. And I hope it helps you to think through these things. And you'll have all of your own personal issues. You've got to try to think through yourself As you apply the word of God in these principles, well, our time is gone. But any quick comments or questions? We've time for like one comment or question. If not, I'll pray. All right, let's pray. Eternal God and Father, we come before Thee again in Christ's name, and we realize, O Lord, this is a very, very high standard, and our only hope to uh, to live according to Your Word is by the Spirit of God. Uh, We think even the context of Ephesians that we're not to be drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. And so we understand that if a husband is to act in this way and a wife is to act as she is to act, it will only be by the Spirit of God working in their lives. But help us to take the Word of God to heart. We thank you for it. We do live in a day of, of such confusion in these areas. I know I can say with every husband and father here, forgive my sins for Christ's sake. Forgive every sin of omission and commission where we have not acted according to thy word. We realize, O oh Lord, we're guilty in these areas. And we thank you again for the gospel. Perhaps there are some men here and they feed the weight of their conscience upon their hearts even today. We pray that they would run to Christ, the balm of Gilead giving peace to their souls. O oh Lord, we pray for his sake. Encourage our hearts. We pray for broken homes. We pray, O Lord, for our young people. We ask, O God, for our young men, that they would give themselves to be godly, biblical husbands in the days to come. That this would be for the good of the church, for the good of their wives, for their children, and for society at a large. O Lord, we pray, work for thy glory and for thy name's sake. Bless our time of worship that now follows. Keep your hand upon us throughout this day. In Jesus' name, amen.